Psalm 8. Open your Bibles. Psalm 8, we are in the midst of um, looking at, at Psalms 6 through 10, and this morning we're in number 8. Psalm 8 is all about the Lord stooping down so that we can see him, so that we can know him. And understand this, understand this very clearly. If the Lord did not stoop down, if he did not come to us, if he did not reveal himself to us, we would never know him. Well, we would have no opportunity because he is simply greater than our minds can comprehend. Do you know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm saying with that? God is eternal. His power is limitless. His knowledge is absolute. He has created all that exists. He sustains us and our lives and this world in which we live. His love is immeasurable. His forgiveness is bottomless. And quite frankly, our minds can't grasp that. We can't do more than, than merely begin to grasp what all of those things mean let alone what they mean for us. The fact that God has always existed, that he's eternal, that he created everything that is, that he is holy, our minds can't wrap around that stuff. We tend to, we tend to think about things in relative terms. Well, God is more holy than I am. Well, that is true but it is also true that God is absolutely holy. And we may, we may think, well, God is eternal. That means he's been around longer than I've been around. Well, yeah, that is true. He's been around longer than you, but it also means he had no beginning, nor will he have an end. When we talk about the fact that God's power is limitless, maybe we think about it like when we were a little kid. Remember back in that day, in that delusion where you thought your dad was so strong that, that he was just the strongest thing ever. I'll never remember that or forget that crushing day in high school when I got around behind my dad and picked him up off his feet. And he was like a fish out of water. And I had him. But something changed in that moment. Because I became more powerful. That will never happen with God. Because he is not just relatively powerful. He is absolutely powerful. And our minds, our minds can't grasp that. If it were not for the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, we could do little more than, than just understand that he is beyond us, that he is greater than us. Uh, but God has revealed himself. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day, there in the perfection of the garden. And he visited Abraham and Sarah for lunch. Remember that there, there one hot afternoon? And he wrestled with Jacob. And he talked with Moses. He spoke through the prophets and, and through the psalmist as well. He revealed himself through his word so that humanity, so that you and me, so that we in some small way might begin to know him. God wants us 
to know him. It's, it's his greatest act of revelation. When the eternal, omnipotent God put on human flesh. And as John chapter 1 puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eternal God putting on human flesh and frailty. God in all his glory stooping low just so that we can know him. So that we can know him. Jesus walked this earth. He lived out his, his perfect life on this sin-filled world. He, he took our sin. He bore it upon the cross. And in all of that, God displayed his glory in the midst of our weakness. He reached down in the midst of our frailty so that he might show us who he is. Well, let's take a look at our text for this morning, Psalm chapter 8. And because the Psalms were written for us to use when we come together to worship, that's what I want to do. I want us to read this Psalm together in unison. So will you do this? Will you stand with me out of respect for the Word of God? Open your Bibles to Psalm 8 if they're not there yet. And we are going to read this brief Psalm together, beginning with verse 1. The psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whoever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us. God, I pray that in some greater way this morning, we would know you, that we would experience you, that you would reveal yourself to us. Open our minds. Sharpen our understanding, Lord. That we might know you more. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as do many of the Psalms, Psalm 8 begins with a title notation. This one says, To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. So again, this psalm was written by King David, as were many of the psalms. And we are told that it is to be performed according to the Giddith. The problem being we have no idea what the Giddith is. Um, some scholars think that the Giddith is some kind of musical instrument. Could be. Um, the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, though, 
So the Septuagint, it's a translation from the original Hebrew into the Greek. It's a translation that was done about 150 years before Jesus walked the earth. So it's a very ancient translation. The Septuagint, it translates this phrase, the Giddeth, as being for the winepress. For the winepress, probably meaning that this was to be a joyful song to be sung during the time of the grape harvest. And the def, that definition would actually fit very well with the psalms that are labeled as to be done according to the Giddeth. Uh, they are all joyful songs of praise. So that is certainly possible. Well, let's begin to dig in there. In verse one, you read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. So this song of praise, it begins by addressing God both by his name and by his place or his role. Now, literally, what is written there in the Hebrew, in the original language, it is, it is the name Yahweh, our Lord. O Lord, our Lord is in the Hebrew, Yahweh, God's name, our Lord. So his name, who is our Lord or our master? So the psalmist is most simply saying here, our God, our God who told us that his name is Yahweh, our God is our master. Time for a self-check. Is your God your master? Or is he simply an advisor? Is he your master? Because the psalmist says here that our God, the one who has revealed himself to us, that he has revealed himself to us, not just so that we might take into account the things that he says, but that we might be in a relationship with him that is very specific that he would be master and that we would be submitted to him. Oh, Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, our master. David says that his name or who he is, the essence of his being, his name is the most majestic of all the earth. That this God who has revealed himself to us, this God whom we have chosen to serve, this God who is our master, he is glorious. He is more majestic than any other in all the earth. God's glory is so great, David says that it exceeds the heavens. It can't be contained or comprehended or qualified. God's glory is greater than, it is more expansive than, it is grander than the night sky. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that when you get out away from the city lights, the night sky that is filled with millions of stars, with constellations and galaxies. You know, I don't think there's anything that can more quickly make us feel small. Am I right? I mean, there are things, there are experiences in life that make you feel small, that, that suddenly open your eyes to the reality of our relative size to all of creation. But is there anything more powerful than walking away from the light, looking up into a sky, 
and seeing more stars than your mind can comprehend. Seeing the vastness of the universe. There are times, are there times for you when you, you simply look at the moon? I mean, it's the closest rock to ours. And yet you, your mind begins to try to fathom how far away this thing is. And yet people have been there. And you just, you think about the vastness of creation. And the psalmist says, our God's glory is too large for what he has made. God created this, this vast universe that we can't even sense its edge so large that we can't even quantify it. And yet, what the psalmist says is the jar is too small. If we're going to fill it with God's glory, all that God created, this entire universe, would simply overflow because God's glory is over the heavens. Do we get that? Is that the God we worship? Or have we somehow thrown God in the dryer? Left him on high heat for too long. And we found that our God is shrunken. That our God is small. That our God is, is not terribly powerful. The psalmist says, no. Our God, our God's power is limitless. His glory cannot be contained. And so we worship him. Verse two, David says this, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. <laughs> what an immense transition. Do you catch that? We go from looking at the vastness of the galaxies the hugeness of the universe. And then we look down into the face of a baby. We look down into the eyes of a child. What a strange picture as well. That here, God says that he builds a stronghold against his enemies. That he exhibits his strength his limitless power through the words of babies and infants. Just think about that for a minute. Babies and infants don't say a lot. They say gibberish, right? And yet here, God, God points to the weakest thing of all. He goes from the grandness of the universe down to this helpless small child who can't do anything but, but, but pronounce gibberish. And God says, I display my strength through the weakest of the weak. Now, honestly, it's difficult to understand exactly what the psalmist means here beyond the very general idea that God exhibits his strength through our weakness. It's much the same concept that we read about in 1 Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verse uh, 27 and 28, Paul is writing, he says this, he says, but God chose, and, and by the way, he's speaking of us here. So get ready. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. Again, that's all us. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are. God is saying this. In your weakness, I show my strength. My strength is so great that I can display it through the weakest of the weak. I think it can be helpful, and I think it's interesting that, again, the Septuagint translation, that ancient translation from the Hebrew into the Greek, when the Septuagint translates this psalm, and also when Jesus quotes this psalm in Matthew 21, 16, Jesus quotes it, the Septuagint translates it a little differently. It says this, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. You have prepared praise. It's in the weakness of our worship. Think about that. It is in the weakness of our worship that God displays his strength and his glory. It is you and I as we come to worship. Worship is not a, a moment of strength. Worship is not about us. We're not like, yeah. It's all about me. No, but it's a, it's a focus on the Lord and it's a worship of his glory and his greatness. And it's a humbling of self. It's a debasing of self. It's me saying, you are worthy to be my master. You are worthy, not only that I would honor you, not only that I would respect you, but that I would worship you. Because you are great and you are mighty, and you are holy. And I am small, and I am weak, and I am broken. It is in our weakness that his strength is displayed. And as the Septuagint, as Jesus himself points us, nowhere more so than in worship. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And the vastness of the night sky, again, it's overwhelming. And remember this, remember this, you have that image in your mind of looking up into the night sky and you see so many stars that they begin to look like, like some sort of a, a cloud of stars. You see the mass of the universe. And yet every speck of light that you see every star that your eyes are able to discern. Remember this, each one is as enormous and as powerful as the sun. It is massive beyond our comprehension. It is powerful beyond our imagining. And this universe, filled with stars beyond number, uh, many 
which are far greater in mass and in size than our own sun. It was all created by God. All of it was created by God. And the stars, the moon, the sun, the psalmist tells us what? That they are the work of God's fingers. They are a small work of God. He didn't even have to put his back into it. This is the work of his fingers. This is something that did not require God's full strength. That, dear friends, is the power of our God. Our God is so amazing that these things that overwhelm and overawe us were just the work of his fingers. By the way, if you're having a hard time picturing a night sky full of stars, let me just recommend you do something. Don't Google it. Get out there. Get out there. We live in a world that is becoming a simulation. Yeah, everything is virtual reality. Oh, I'm not going to go do that thing. I'm just going to put on a headset and I'm going to kind of experience what it would be like if I actually, go do it. Get out there. See the glory of God's creation. Now, some of you will say, well, that's my church. That's not your church. Okay, don't say that. That's, that's stupid. I'm sorry. I, I, it's stupid. That's not church. Church is when we come together, we are the church. Trees are not a part of the body of Christ but they do display the glory of God. Get out there. See the glory of God's creation. Don't just look at images on a screen, but live life with eyes that see the glory of God. The psalmist tells us that the God who thought of and designed and created and sustains all of the universe that he cares for you. Did you see that? As puny as we are, as frail as we are, as small as we are, as insignificant as we are in the midst of this vast universe, as small as we are in the midst of this enormous world, we are really less than microscopic in the context of all of creation. You ever think about that? You, you know, you take your fingers together, you snap them. You just murdered millions of microorganisms that live on your fingers. You animal. And you didn't even feel bad. You weren't even aware because they're microscopic. You know what? You and I, we are microscopic in the context of all the universe, but not in God's eyes. The God who created all that exists, he remembers us, he looks after us. In the midst of the enormity of the cosmos, regardless of the puniness of humanity, his eye is on us. Understand this. Please get this. God isn't just aware, but indifferent. 
God isn't merely conscious of you, but uncaring about you. We have God's attention. We have his concern. We have his heart. Peter reminds us of this. He says that we can cast all of our anxiety upon him, upon the Lord, because he cares for us. Never forget that. Dear friends, never forget that. God cares for you. He cares about you. And, and not just in a generic way. Not just in a generic way. God knows you personally, individually. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, there in verse 7, Jesus says that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows you so well that your hairs have serial numbers. They're, they're numbered. He not only knows the sum of them all, he knows them each individually. And understand, what Jesus is saying isn't that God's knowledge of you is just kind of oddly and awkwardly vast, but that his love and his care for you is wonderfully real and personal. What Jesus is saying here is that God not only loves the world, he loves you. You, the individual. He knows you, the individual. And he died not only for everyone's sin, not just for sin in general, but for yours specifically. What Jesus is saying here is that he doesn't just care for humanity he cares for you. We've got to know this. We've got to know this not as a fact, not as a truth. We've got to know this as a reality. A lot of us carry all the right answers up here. And we know that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Somewhere, at some point, someone drummed that in. But do I live it? Is that reflected in, in how I see life? In how I process my circumstances? Do I not only know it as a fact, as a truth, but am I experiencing it as a reality? You know, there is only one way to begin to experience that, and that is to cry out to him to meet you in that space. To ask him to show you his love for you. And that is something that, that God longs to do. And that, that is a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Marking us as being one 
who belongs to, who is claimed by, who has the mark of ownership of the Savior. You know, when we know his love in reality and experience, we begin to know the Savior in a whole different way. Well, verse 5. Yet you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So God has made us. God has made us as part of his creation and he has placed us on the spectrum of created things below himself. But catch this, please understand this, above the animals. You have more value than a tree. Congratulations. This world doesn't think so. This world thinks that you and, and, and some frog species are basically the same. Equal value. You could swap one for the other. But that isn't what God's word says. God's word says that he has placed us on the spectrum below himself but above the animals. And now the word there in verse 5 that here is translated as the heavenly beings. In the Hebrew it is the word Elohim which most simply means the gods. And though it is most often translated as referring to God himself, the Trinity, that's why it's plural, because it is three persons and one God. Yet this word's meaning is broad enough that it can also refer to the angels of heaven. And here we, we take it to mean the angels of heaven in part because that's the way the Septuagint, that, that translation from the ancient Hebrew into the Greek, translates it. And in part because um, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews quotes this psalm, uh, applying it to Jesus. And there too it is translated as angels. Either way, if it's translated as, as angels or as God himself, the point is the same. God has made us. And he has placed us on the spectrum of created things below himself, below the angels, but above the animals. We are less than angels, and yet, and yet God has crowned us with glory and honor that the angels will never see. God has stooped down in the midst of our weakness and frailty. He has chosen uh, the weakness of humanity to be the recipient of his love and of his sacrifice. God Almighty has served us. He has honored us with his focus and with his grace. We who are finite and ignorant and lacking in power to save ourselves, God has not only saved us, but he has honored and glorified us by pouring out his great love upon us at the cross. God Almighty, creator of the universe, chose to serve you. 
to bear your sin. To go to the cross for you, for me. And he has not only taken our sin and and its punishment, he has given us his righteousness and its reward. In our weakness, Scripture tells us that we are clothed, if we are in Christ, with his righteousness. And on that day, when we go to be with the Savior, we go to receive a reward that we have not earned. We go to receive not the reward of our behavior, our performance, but we go to receive the reward of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God has given us dominion. He's given us dominion over all that he has created. He's put us in charge of his creation. You and I, we are to take responsibility for the world that God has given us to live in. We we are to be stewards or managers of all of creation. So what exactly does that mean? Well, stewards are not worshipers and they are not owners. We do not worship nature. We worship nature's creator. And we are, as stewards, to take charge of and to care for that which he has given us to take care of. We don't own this world. Understand that. Even your property is not yours. It's on loan from God. This world, it isn't ours, it's his It was made by and it belongs to God and so we should not misuse or abuse or think that it is merely ours. But rather we should manage it all on his behalf. Psalm 24.1 reminds us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein, it all belongs to God, us included. It's kind of a complicated thing, isn't it? We are more than just a part of creation. God has put us over his creation. But it and we ourselves all belong to him. This isn't ours, it's his, and we are taking care of it for him. God has given us this world to use for our benefit, for food, for resources. And so we are to wisely manage this earth in a way that gives God glory And that benefits not only us, but future generations. As God's stewards, we should be more committed to caring for the earth than are those who deny God and worship nature. We should be bigger tree huggers than the tree huggers. We're just okay if we need to cut it down to warm our family you know, to build a house or to to provide fuel for the stove. But we should be more concerned about creation than are those who don't know the one who owns it all. We need to see with complete clarity that this world is here to sustain us. The purpose of creation is first and foremost to bring glory to God. 
But secondly, it is here to sustain us and our children and our grandchildren. God has put us in dominion over his creation. He has elevated us with his glory. And the psalmist ends. He ends with verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He goes back to where he started. He ends where he began. That God, he is our master, he is our Lord, and he is glorious. His glory exceeds our ability to comprehend it. God has displayed his glory. He has reached down, he has stooped down into our weakness so that we might know him, that we might worship him. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for David and for this song that he's given us to sing. These words that he's given us to declare that you are glorious. Beyond our comprehension, you are mighty and holy and good and true. You have stooped down. God, to rescue us and to pour out your glory in our midst so that we might know you. And you've elevated us. God, you have elevated us with your sacrifice in our place. You have elevated us by putting us in a place of authority over your creation. And God, I pray that as we live out this life, we would live lives of worship. That everything we do would be in response to you. God, that everything that we do would be in response to a greater and greater understanding of your glory, of your majesty, that overflows this too small container of the universe. Lord, show us your glory. Show us your majesty that we might worship you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.